It's entitled in the NIV, Saul's Conversion, Acts chapter 9, reading verses 1 to 25. Meanwhile, Saul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called, him, called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias uh, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with, the, with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is, cho is my chosen instrument to proclaim my names to the Gentiles and their kings to the, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him and were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and loaded him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you, for your, thank you for your word and thank you for Saul who became Paul and one of the greatest turnarounds in, in history of, of, of your followers, Lord. I just pray this morning that we can, that we can be like that or we, we, any friends that we think are impossible to change, uh, that we can do it, Lord. We can, we can pray for them and that they will become followers and strong followers of you. I pray now for Rob as he shares your word. I pray that his words will be your words and that you can speak directly to our hearts through everything that Rob has to say this morning. probably heard this story of the three men who went hunting in the wilds of Alaska. They wanted to shoot a deer for venison for the pot. And there was a preacher and a lawyer 
and a doctor. It's one of those jokes. And sooner or later, this, this deer comes into sight, and these three men who've never really been hunting before get all excited, and they all lean down, and they all take a shot at this thing, and they all shoot their guns off, and the deer just falls dead right there, several hundred yards ahead of them. So they send the professional guide who's with them, and they say, just go check that it's, it's all okay, you know? And he comes back, and he says, yes, the deer is dead, but only one bullet hit it. Now they say, well, we need to know which one of us it was. And the guide said, well, it's really quite easy. It's definitely the preacher's bullet. So, well, how do you know that? He says, well, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> and I hope that's not the case today, that very often when we, when we hear things from, the, from, the word of, from God's word, it can, without our real Holy Spirit blessing and Holy Spirit guidance, it can go in one ear and out the other, but that will not be the case today, I know. We're looking today at the conversion, possibly the most staggering of all conversions in Christian history, not only in terms of how it occurred, but in terms of what happened thereafter the opening up of the church to the Gentile world. And this morning I'd like to look briefly at that conversion and draw one or two thoughts from it. Then I'd like to look briefly at what happens to Saul thereafter when Ananias comes to him and, and, and uh, introduces him, in a sense, to the discipleship there. And then finally, some of the consequences that arise from that. Paul or Saul arrives, I'm going to call him Paul and Saul, I'm going to just use it interchangeably. He's on the road to Damascus and he's got letters in his pocket from the high priest in Jerusalem giving him authority to extradite Christians from Damascus, take them back to Jerusalem and imprison them. And this is the man who we've met only briefly up until now. He was the one who gleefully stood there while Stephen was being stoned, you'll remember that. But now he is breathing out threats, murderous threats, and slaughterous threats. The, the Greek word used for slaughter here is the word that is used for slaughtering animals. That's how he felt. Just give me those Christians and I will destroy them. That's another word that is used there, destroy. We have a, a little story. This little story of Paul's conversion is repeated several times in Scripture. We see it in Acts 22 when Paul, when Paul uh, refers to it again. Acts 26, Galatians chapter 1. And each time there's a little bit of different detail added. But this is the most remarkable experience. It's when Christ comes to Paul or to Saul, it's what we call a theophany or if you like a Christophany, which is not a vision because the vision is something you see, but it's not really there. This is an actual appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to Saul. It's an actual appearance. And it's something very, very special. And it, it doesn't really happen again in Scripture. Unless possibly you, you can read that into some of what John sees in the book of Revelation. But why does, why does Christ come to Saul in this dramatic way? Well, I think it's got something to do with the fact that Saul, or Paul as he's now going to be called, is going to be commissioned as an apostle. And the qualifications for apostleship, if you go way back into the very early chapters of Acts, were that you had to be somebody who had met with Christ. Somebody who had met with the living Lord. Now, Saul, of course, had not done that until now. An apostle had to be somebody who was commissioned by the living Lord Jesus Christ. 
Saul has this opportunity right at this moment in time to be commissioned by Christ himself. It's a very, very special occasion. It doesn't keep on happening. I'm saddened sometimes by the fact that some folk don't want to become Christians until they can see something big and lively and bright and shiny. But it's not that way anymore. There have been times when folk have been blessed by having those wonderful experiences. But for most of us, we have the word of God with us now, and we see and God speaks to us through his word. Saul falls to the ground. This, we don't know what the light looks like. It's maybe some kind of massive lightning strike. We don't know for sure, but he's, he falls to the ground, and he, he sees and he hears this voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, Paul adds some detail. He says this voice is speaking in the Hebrew language, for example. Speaking his language. And why persecuting me? This is Jesus speaking. Paul at this stage doesn't realize that it is Jesus. But Jesus here is, I think, identifying with his church. He's saying, Saul, you have, you've persecuted the people of the way, as they were now known, the people of the way, the Christians. Therefore, you are persecuting me. You're persecuting me. And, and, and Saul doesn't know what's going on. And he says, well, who are you, Lord? And that word Lord is not necessarily acknowledging that this is God. It's a word that could be translated sir or master, anything like that. He knows he's dealing with something special here. And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And I'm intrigued by the fact that he doesn't say, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Son of God. He just says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Because it's Jesus the Nazarene that has got Paul so angered. It is Jesus the Nazarene who has been at the heart of Paul's attentions over the last year or so. He's been out persecuting Christians because they believe in Jesus the Nazarene, that man from Galilee, that wandering rabbi, that madman who has got everybody believing this stuff. And when Jesus says to him, I am Jesus, it comes back to Paul in a huge way, I'm sure. And he tells him to get up and go to the city and to do, but, but he's blind. The men who are traveling with him stood there and they didn't, for some reason, they don't hear this. We don't know how that is possible, but in God's divine way, he, he, they also are knocked to the ground, not in this version, but in a later version that tells us. They're also knocked to the ground when this light comes around and they gather their senses and they know something remarkable has happened, but they don't grasp what has been said because it's not told them. And sometimes if we look down at verse 8, Saul got up from the ground now, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. You know, we read over verses like that, and we don't realize what that must be like. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? One moment you're on your way, you've got these letters in your pocket, you're on way to persecute the church, and next minute you're lying in the dust, you stand up and you can't see anything. So they had to take him by the hand and lead him to Damascus. And for three days, he was unable to see. Scenes like this, it's sometimes useful to try to put yourself in that situation. Here's a group of men, and they're all just lying in this dusty, dirty road a couple of miles short of Damascus. It's around about midday, we know that. The sun is beating down mercilessly. They pick themselves off the ground in a state of shock, and they begin to dust themselves off. 
And then they notice that their leader, Saul, is in trouble. He seems to be stumbling around helplessly. He tells them maybe even a state of panic that he he can't see anything. And though they find this strange, they they take hold of him and they lift him up, maybe put him on a horse or something like that, and they take him to Damascus. This is a remarkable story of conversion. As I said, possibly in many ways the most strategic of all conversion stories. The word conversion, and it's not used here particularly, although you would see it maybe in the title that's given to it. Conversion means a total change around, a total change in a different direction. We use it in different ways. We talk about converting steam or water to steam, but it's still H2O. We, we talk about converting Fahrenheit to centigrade, but it's the same thing. This is a total change, a total change, a total turnabout, total turnaround. And how does it happen? Well, we know from Scripture that it starts way back in eternity past before you and I are even thought of, before, long before the world is even created, in God's mind, in God's eyes, he's already thinking about your conversion and mine. And then at God's appointed time, the Holy Spirit comes calling. The Holy Spirit comes calling and our hearts are softened. Our eyes are enabled to see the light for the first time. And in faith and repentance, we turn to Christ And he changes us completely. One of the big dangers that has been done to the the story of conversion is what is called the synergistic conversion. In other words, it's a synergism. God does a bit and you do a bit. It's a kind of shared responsibility. 50-50, as some say. And God can't do anything in your life until you give him permission. That's not the view I get here at all. I see a man, Saul, who did nothing in his conversion. Nothing at all. He's struck down and God changes his life. In our statement of faith, we read this, God in his love, in his grace, forgives sinners whom he calls. And then what does he do? He grants them repentance and faith. Even the faith and even the repentance comes from God. It's all of him. And you should rejoice, because I rejoice in that. If I bring anything to my salvation, that's a sure sign that I can take it back again and lose it. And I know as I stand before you here, I'm not going to lose that salvation. It is mine for eternity, because God has done it in my life. For by grace you are saved, in Ephesians 2, through faith. And even the faith is not of your own. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest any should boast. This passage doesn't tell us about Saul's repentance. We don't have that. But we do know that for three days, he's blind, he's fasting. And I can simply imagine that during these three days, he's before God, prostrate before God, repenting for what he has done. Remember what this man has done. Already he has imprisoned hundreds upon hundreds of Christians. And we need to understand that repentance is so much a part of it. Of coming to Christ, it's about repentance and it's about faith. And it's not necessarily about having visions. It would be nice, but, you know, God has done so much for us. 
I rejoice this morning as I stand before you as a man whose life was turned around. If I could share just a brief word of testimony. I was 13 going on 14 when I knelt down in a little tent in the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa. And a man who until recently was my accountant here in the UK led me to the Lord Jesus. We prayed together, I confessed my sins, and Christ came into my life and changed me. Now, I wasn't a bad guy in many ways. I was brought up in a very strong Christian home, but I was driven by three things, and church wasn't one of them. Well, I used to go along, and I even used to take part in some of the stuff and play the music and so on, but it wasn't part of my life. It was all just a sham. All that I lived for were three things. Academics, I just loved school. One of those weird nerdy types, particularly Latin and history. I just loved Latin and history. And then I loved music. I just wanted to play music as often as I could. My, my dear father, he just bought me musical instrument after musical instrument in his grace and his favor. He just kept giving me wonderful stuff that I asked for. I was a really selfish brat and I got... I got what I asked for. My brother inherited it. He was four years younger. He never got anything new. <laughs> and my other, my other passion was sport. I played every sport that was possible. On a Saturday, I, I played rugby or cricket for the school. And uh, on, on a Sunday afternoon, I'd go and play football for the club. I played for a professional club in, in, in Durban, in South Africa. And that's all I wanted to do. God changed that. Did I stop loving my academics? Did I stop enjoying sport? Did I stop wanting to do my music? No, but God changed that, enabled me to use those things in a very different way. I went off to Bible college in America when I turned 18. And two years into that stay in 1970, I was offered by two particular, through two particular routes, an opportunity to become involved in music once again, secular music, playing for a, a band. One of them was already one of the top groups in America. Another one would go on to be California's top rock band of the 1970s. And you know how easy it was to say no? It was the easiest decision in my life to say, sorry guys, I've got something else I've got to do. Two or three years after that, just before I left America to come back to Cape Town in South Africa to take up my role as a director of Youth for Christ, I was offered a contract with a British-English uh, football club. I didn't know much about the club. The manager was a chap by some, some obscure name, Bobby Robson. Never heard of him. But they said, we want you to come over, we want you to play for this particular club. You can work out which it was. One of the top English club at the time in Europe. Guess how easy it was to say, no, 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 not interested. God turned my life around. That's what he does. So when, you know, when, when people say, how did you become a Christian? It's not just the fact that you said a prayer. It's God changes your life. And I hope he's, he's changed all of your lives. I see changed lives in front of me. I see wonderful folk who, who live for the Lord day after day after day. And it's my prayer and my hope that everybody who comes in these doors or listens on the, on the Zoom or views in on the Zoom, that they would have this experience of God changing their lives. 
That's what conversion is. God does it. He really does it. But what happens after this? We're now directed to another individual. You see in, uh, further down, it says, Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. So God is preparing Ananias now to meet with Saul. A disciple named Ananias. We already know that uh, apostles have been appointed. There are 12 of them, and now we've got Saul as well. We know that deacons have been appointed. Stephen, Philip, and others. But Ananias is not one of those. He's a disciple. He's what we are. He's a follower. And it's to him that is given one of the most important tasks in all of the New Testament. William Barclay calls him one of the great heroes, the unsung heroes of the New Testament. It's given up to him to introduce Paul, Saul, to the Christian church. And that's not an easy thing, as we'll see. And I'm encouraged by this. He's a disciple. He's not an apostle. He's not a deacon. You don't need a title. You don't need a title to do something for God. You can be just a disciple. And the Lord says to Ananias in this vision, he just calls out his name. I love the way in these visions, Lord knows everyone's name. That always strikes me. You know, the God of the universe just looks down. There's this man, and he knows his name, Ananias. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. What a response. Here I am. The response is not, hey, who are you? <laughs> you know? He knows because he's a man. He's a devout believer. We know that from later on when Paul talks about him. We know that he recognizes God immediately. He doesn't say, well, what do you want? Ananias doesn't query the purpose of the Lord at this stage. He's available to do whatever God wants him to do. And he doesn't say, why me, Lord? He doesn't question God's identification of him for this particular task. He simply accepts that God has got it right. He is the man that God has chosen for this task, and he makes himself available. Yes, there is a moment of hesitation. There is a moment of even reluctance because of what we, what we know about Saul and what Ananias knows about Saul. Lord, do you know who you want me to go and talk to? This is this man who's come here to destroy Christians, and you want me to go and talk to him. And God says to him, get up and go. I love that as well. Get up and go. And in my translation, a slightly different translation to yours, the Bible says, Ananias got up and went. I do like that. And that's what we do when, when Christ makes a call upon our lives, and he says, get up and go. We get up and go. We don't sit back and wait. We get up and go. And he's got to go to the street, the certain street, street called Straight. It's a long straight road. Apparently it's still there in Damascus today. It's called something different, but you can still visit that straight, that street. And apparently you can still visit the house that is proposed to be the house of Judas, although it may, of course, may not be. And off he goes. He doesn't sit back and wait. He gets up and he goes. We understand his reluctance. And look at how, when he gets there, God describes Saul in a very special way. And this is something that really struck me. God describes Saul as my chosen instrument, different translations, my chosen vessel, my elect vessel. 
Elect or chosen simply means something that is picked out of a selection of things. That's what it means, something that is chosen out of a group. And the word instrument, or the word vessel, simply means that. It's something that is of use to somebody. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an implement that is crafted for a specific purpose. That's what the, means, the word skios means in the Greek. And something that has been crafted for a specific purpose. And when I look at Saul, I see a man who you wouldn't think so, but has been absolutely crafted for this purpose. He is a learned man. He is obviously a man that when he speaks, uh, has influence. He's a man who has, has a strong character. He's a man who is determined. We can see that from all the stuff that he's been doing. He's been crafted for this particular purpose. And he's been selected from among many to be God's chosen instrument. And that choosing took way back in eternity, as we've just said. Way back in eternity. God puts his hand on this man, Saul of Tarsus. And it's also good to remember here that a, a vessel or an instrument, whether it be a telephone or a kettle or a compass, whatever that instrument is, has no value or no power unless it is in the hand of a user, of an agent. Of an agent. And we are vessels in God's hand, as Paul was. That's what we are. Some years ago, Nick led a program here called Instruments in the Hand of a living God, was it? Instruments in the hand of a... Redeemer's hands. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands, that's right. And that's what we are. We are instruments. We have no power in ourselves. We have nothing to offer. But God crafts us and he chooses us and he makes us into somebody that he can use. And we rely entirely on him to do that. And then God says something strange to Ananias. He says... I will show him, that is Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer. I will show him how much he must suffer. And I looked at that first and I said, well, what, what's this got to do with Ananias? Why does Ananias need to know that Saul is going to suffer? My first thought is, is this some kind of reassurance that Saul's not going to get away with all the horrible things that he's done? Is it some kind of revenge? But it's not that at all. It's not just about Saul being now on the receiving end. If Saul was to be the greatest of God's servants, and many would say maybe he was the greatest of God's servants, then he is going to have to have the greatest share of suffering. And that inevitably comes to any believer, especially then in the first century. Al Mola says the following. He says, this, this is a certain irony here. Do you see it? The arrester becomes the one arrested, this time by the Holy Spirit. The one who would lay hands on Christians becomes the one upon whom Christian hands are now laid. An enemy of the way becomes a brother in the way. And it's lovely to read how Paul describes this in more detail in chapter 22. But what happens after this? Saul is now laid hands upon, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and something like scales, it says, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. The recovery of physical sight is a, is a wonderful thing. 
But very often sight or lack of sight is used in the scriptures to talk about much more than just the physical. Very often it refers to the spiritual as well. And here's a man now who for the very first time has had his eyes open to the truth of the scriptures. Can you imagine this? We must remember that Saul was and he still is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a strict follower of the Pharisaic school. But so much is now going to change. He's going to have to reinterpret the scriptures he knows so well from a totally different point of view. He's going to have to look at those scriptures, many of which he will have memorized. Large portions will have been memorized. He's going to have to look at them now through new eyes entirely. And it doesn't take him long to begin to show that he's doing that. Because in this, the second part, we see Saul saved in the first part. Now we see him moving in the very early stages of his sanctification. And in our sanctification, in our growth for Christ, this is where we do have a part to play. Unlike in our salvation, where it's all of God, as we grow in him, we do have a part to play. Uh, Paul himself uses... Analogies like that of a soldier fighting and putting on armor. There are analogies that are used of a runner, an athlete, who is striving to reach the end point. Paul says in Philippians, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And then he adds the important piece, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to will and to act for his good purpose. I no longer live, Paul says in Galatians, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So now we have a part to play. I love the way John puts it. Paul's favorite terminology about living the Christian life is in Christ, being in Christ. John doesn't use that. John uses the word abide. Abide. Meno, to remain, to take up residence. He uses it 13 times in his writing, six times in the gospel. And he uses it three times, for example, uh, five, six times in John 15 alone, three times in 1 John chapter 2. Abide means to live in and with and to take up residence within Christ. And how do you do that? A simple way of thinking about it is to think about you live in Christ, you abide in Christ by attending to what call, we call the means of grace. And there are means of grace in our lives all the time. Every time you read a passage of scripture, it's a means of grace. Every time you hear somebody speak, uh, the, excuse me, the word of God, that's a, a, mean of, a means of grace. Every time you hear a Christian song, it's a means of grace. But the means of grace that are available to Paul right now so that he may abide in Christ are indeed the word, the Bible. I, I know I fuss about this and I want people to bring their Bibles to church and so on. But I, I have to ask you are, you, are you attending to this book? Are you spending time with it? If I were to ask you, how many more verses have you got memorized this year than you had this time last year? How many more verses have you memorized? How many more have you hidden your heart, as the psalmist says? How much more are you studying God's word than you were this time, this, this the last year. How, when was the last time you read a whole book through from beginning to end and regularly? 
This is one of the great means of grace. God speaks to us through his word. We abide in Christ, as, as John says in John 15, 7. You abide, as Christ says, you abide in me and my words abide in you. And you will ask what you will and it will be given to you. Wow, that's unreal. The second means of grace is prayer. And Paul's been doing that for three days. Paul knows how to pray. If one man knows how to pray, it's Paul. He talks a lot about it in his epistles. Prayer is this important means of grace whereby we attend to abiding in Christ through prayer. And thirdly, by fellowship with one another. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's being introduced one by one to the disciples. I love the way Ananias addressed him right in the beginning. Brother Saul. Imagine what that took Ananias to do. Here's this man who's been killing Christians by the hundred. Ananias walks in and says, Brother Saul. Fellowship is a very important part of attending to the means of grace that we might abide in him. We don't abide alone in the Christian life. The Christian life is not a personal, private thing. It's something that is exercised within community. And I'm looking forward to the day, and I, I encourage folk on Zoom right now to, to think about coming back. We need you back here. We need to see you face to face. We need to have you with us. So please think about coming back. Finally, let me just close with this. What are the consequences of all of this? Well, we see in uh, verses 20 to 25, it doesn't take long for Paul to get into trouble. When Bill was reading the passage to us, did you notice how it didn't take long for Paul to start preaching? He'd just been converted. And already he's out there preaching. And what is he preaching? He's proving that Jesus is the Son of God. And it doesn't take long before there's a plot to kill him. And we have this wonderful little story about they get him in a basket and they take him to a hole in the wall and they lower him down and he gets away. If you read down to verse 28 to 31, we need to understand here that in this passage, between verse 22 and verse 23, a period of three years seems to lapse where Paul goes off into the deserts of Arabia to speak to God, to, to meditate and to learn from him. So there's a passage of three years that passes. And then he goes to Jerusalem. And once again, you've got this tentativeness on the part of the disciples. Should we meet this guy? Shouldn't we meet this guy? Eventually, because of a wonderful man by the name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he's taken into the fellowship in Jerusalem. And he starts to preach and preach and preach. And then he gets another sign, they're going to kill me. And so he's taken by ship, and he's taken up, uh, up to what we might call modern-day Turkey. The results of abiding in Christ, the first result is obvious. It's fruit. Jesus says in John chapter 15, the branch that is abiding bears fruit. The branch that is not abiding is cast into the fire. It's not worth anything. We should bear fruit. And what, is, what do we mean by fruit? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly in Galatians 5, 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is a whole lot of attitudes, a whole lot of wonderful gifts that God can give us. Love and joy and peace. I've discovered, even in my own life over this pandemic time, particularly joy and peace have not been that easy. Have you had that experience? Sometimes joy has been 
tempered by concern, tempered by an anxiousness to get out of all of this. Peace. Not, sometimes not feeling as peaceful as I should feel. But these are the fruits that the Spirit wants to bring into our lives. Another fruit is the fruit of witnessing. Bill's talked about that in his prayers today and what he said to us. One of the fruits that came out of Saul's life was this unbelievable ministry. Incredible ministry. And this year, I know we've talked about it at Elders and we talk about it every time. We need to really think and pray more and more and more about how do we expand our influence, our, how do we get the message out into the houses around here? What do we do to witness to Christ? It starts with having a real sense, a real empathy, a real sympathy for those who are lost and outside of Christ. That's where it starts. I said some time ago that Jonathan Edwards, one of the great intellects of all history, never prayed for a vision of heaven. He always prayed to God for a vision of hell so that he would never be short when it came to saving, helping to save people from hell. Charles Haddon Spurgeon never pulled punches when he preached. And one of the things he says is this, if you have no vision of the lost without Christ, it probably means that you yourself could still be lost. That's staggering. If you have no vision in your heart for people who don't know Christ, then the chances are that maybe you've never come to him yourself. We need to pray hard about that. And the, and the final uh, outcome here is this tremendous persecution that Paul finds himself in. You know, I'm going to read it to you very briefly because I think it's important that we remember this. And I'm going now, if you've got your Bibles with you, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11 from verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11:23, where we talk, where Paul talks about the suffering that he has been through. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I am talking like a am I talking like a madman? I am a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. And then he goes on to make a list of his sufferings. Just listen to this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the depths of the sea. On frequent journeys, I faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers from amongst false brothers. I suffered hard labor and hardship. I had many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. I can never read those words without feeling, first of all, a sense of gratitude to God that I have not been called to do all of that. A few sleepless nights, no more than that. 
but a sense of deep concern that maybe the gospel that I have been preaching has either been watered down so much or I have presented it so timidly that it has attracted very little negative comment. Christ said to his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount and those listening, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. Not if, when. Blessed are you when they persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. He said further on in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wants to come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. What is the cross? If it isn't a suffering, if it isn't being hurt, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. So those are the, those are the consequences of being born again, being regenerated, being converted, Growing up in Christ and abiding in Christ, we should see fruit on our lives, but that fruit may also, when, we, when that fruit turns to witness, that witness may turn to persecution. But I want to end on a very positive note. And that's not specifically in the text here, but there is one final, eventual, and inevitable goal of our salvation. And that is that one day we will be with him. I thought about it the other day when I was asked to think of some songs for the service, and I had one. And it's a song that, I hope I'm not sounding too uh, doom and gloom here, but I'd like this song at my funeral one day, 50 years from now. Um, Because if there's anybody there, and I'd like to think there may be one or two, um, they may be standing there in that service whenever it is and wherever it is, And they may even feel a a touch of sadness. Oh, Bobby G's gone off, you see. But I, at that moment, I stand alone in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. I'm going to ask... Nick and Natalie to come. We're going to sing that together. Can I just leave you with this thought? We've talked about conversion. I have to ask you, because it's my task to do so. Are you converted today? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Don't say, yeah, well, I prayed this prayer 20 years ago. and Is there fruit in your life? That's the sign. Are you converted? Are you abiding in Christ today? I'm not saying are you perfect, because that would be crazy. If you were perfect, I guarantee you would all bow down to you because you would be God. But are you abiding? Are you growing in him? And if there is negative consequences for that, if people are mocking and scorning you, that's okay because that's expected. And you will gain your life if you lose it. I stand alone in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Shall we stand and sing?